All right. Last week we um, we began to try to answer the question: Is it reasonable to believe the New Testament? Does it make sense to believe the claims of the New Testament? And um, you know, as Christians, I believe it's very important that we actually believe that the New Testament is true. Now, a lot of us have we we have grown up with the idea that has been planted there, and I don't mean to be um, I don't mean to come across. Uh, as if someone was trying to deceive you, but we've come to the we've come to this idea that the Bible is something that has to be totally believed on by faith. But not only does that statement come across, but I think the word faith is actually being misused in that context. Because we, we did a series on this, I guess it's close to about a year ago, about it's impossible to please God without faith. And we determined that faith is actually an action or behavior based on what you know to be true. And to exercise faith in God is to believe one that God exists that he has spoken and you believe what he says is true therefore you act in obedience to his word trusting him for the results so nowhere will you find in the New Testament where we are called as Christians to check our brains at the door and to believe in something without evidence so I want you to have, have an understanding there there are some things that that are not scientifically um, testable that the, um, that the Word of God claims to be true, but do we have good facts and good philosophical evidence and logic to back those things up? Absolutely. Well, now we're not going to be able to cover all of these things. I cannot get you a, an apologetics degree in, the, in, the, in two weeks in 30-minute sessions here. But I want you to understand the Bible is believable, not only by faith, or what we claim to say faith is, but it is believable because it's true. Is what we believe as Christians something reasonable? I mean, because the New Testament makes some pretty good claims. Okay, it claims that dead people can come back alive. It claims that crippled people can be healed. It claims that people can be possessed by demonic presences and be cast out. So is it reasonable to believe that? Many skeptics today will say, no, it's not reasonable. <laughs> because those things are outlandish to believe. Now, did y'all know that? That people are saying that the New Testament is crazy to believe. Okay, and I want you to understand that opposition is not getting weaker. It's actually getting stronger. The skeptics are becoming more and more prevalent. They're being indoctrinated with this in their schools and in their colleges and by professors and atheists who have an agenda to push on this. So I think it's very important, though this is not a typical sermon over the last for the last week and this week that um, that you typically get in in I was about to say regular churches but we're a regular church but this is not something typical but I do believe that this falls under my job description in, in preparing the saints for ministry you need to be equipped with this information one because I do not want you to be thrown off because of the skeptics, because they'll get you thrown off. They're pretty brilliant in how they attack these things. And if we don't have good reasons in our mind and confidence in the Word of God that it is true, you will find yourself like many who are confronted with the idea of the skeptics and you are caused to be led astray away from the Word of God. So this is, this is why I am actually kind of doing this very short two-week thing. Now we're just scraping the surface on each one of these points. Each one of these points that we're going through, they go deep. We're only just taking a couple ideas, maybe one or two at the most, as we're kind of going through this. You know, like I said, my goal is not to 
um, graduate you with an apologetics degree, but I would just want to wet your whistle about this. I want this to spark an interest. I want this to set you on fire that will turn you on to the Word of God to jump into it and say, this is true. Because to be honest with you, it's really hard to stand firm in the world against persecution and confrontation if you don't really believe it's really, really real. Does that make sense? All right. So what we talked about is a review. Last week we had 12 points to go through. The first one, the first six were, uh, were, were what you uh, received last week, and we'll do a very quick review over this. I'm going to be talking faster than you can keep up for at least the first six points. And then for the last six points, I'm still going to be speaking quickly because we have a lot of information to cover. But for, for you boys and girls who've shown up again today, I have a stack right here of my notes, the, the entire outline with all the information, along with some resources in there that you can cross-examine with. So, so relax, you don't have to take notes, I'll give you them in the entirety. I just want you to pay attention and grab this. Alright, so is it reasonable to believe the New Testament is true? I believe that I can prove to you beyond reasonable doubt the New Testament is true based on the facts that I'm going to lay out for you here. They say, well, why can't you prove it beyond any doubt? Well, because I'm not a personal first-hand witness to the things that the apostles are writing about. That's the only way that you can eliminate any possible doubt is this, if you were there. But I think it's more reasonable to believe that the New Testament is true, and I think it is unreasonable to say that it is false in light of the evidence. So as we continue, now what were some of these, some of these lines? The first thing that we need to understand is that if we believe that the Bible is true, we better be able to trust what it says. Two things must happen. First, the original authors must have recorded historically accurate information. What they wrote down had to be accurate. And secondly, we need to understand and know that what you hold in your hand, bound in leather, is what the apostles wrote. Can we draw those two conclusions by the evidence? I will say that yes, we possibly, not possibly can, but yes, Reasonably, we can. All right. So remember the first one was, is that multiple independent sources contributed to the, to the biblical account of God's story from Genesis to Exodus. You have the Bible acrostic there. B is Biblia, right, Greek word for books. So what you have is a holy book. And within that one book, you have 66 books, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament. I is inscribers, that is writers because there's not a W in Bible, right? Y'all get that. That's kind of a joke. Y'all aren't, aren't very, my jokes are really bad. My jokes are really bad or stale. You've heard them before. All right, inscribers, that's the writers. We have at least 40 different writers of the Bible. 35 for certain, but most likely at least 40 and possibly 41. We have birthdays. It was written over a period of four, 1,500 years, from 1,400 B.C. all the way to 70 A.D. That's a long time span. Also, it spanned over four major geographical locations in the world. And we have one non-contradictory, coherent story from beginning to end. So that means we have 66 books written by 40 different writers over a period of 1,500 years in four major locations with one coherent story. And the golden thread that ties them all together is the redemption through the blood of Jesus Christ. That's an amazing book that we have. That right there is enough to, uh, to, be, very, to be very convincing. All right, so multiple independent sources. That is one line of authenticity when it comes to pieces of, pieces of antiquity. And the Bible meets that line. 
Second, we have thousands of manuscripts. We told you the importance of that is that the more manuscripts that you have, the more ability that you have to reconstruct what was actually written. You have more to compare side by side, and you can go line by line and find where there may be some variations and be able to reconstruct exactly what the uh, New Testament writers wrote. Second place in uh, works of antiquity, Homer's Iliad with 1,800 copies. Okay, that's an amazing amount of manuscripts. That's second place. First place, actually there is no close second because the Bible has over 8,000, excuse me, 5,824 available copies. And that doesn't even count the ones we haven't found yet. There still could be more out there. And if you count, and that's just the copies in Greek. Remember, 20,000 if you add all of them together with all of them there. So we actually have a wealth of information concerning the New Testament uh, in doing this. So this is a, another line of, authentic, of authentication that the New Testament does fare quite well in. Actually, the best. Now, the manuscripts were written early. Now, this is based on a historical fact. Now, this is only one, one line of evidence whenever it comes to the fact that the manuscripts were written early. Is, it, is that Jesus, he lived, and he's, he is said to die between 33 and 36 A.D., and that his apostles continue to uh, write after the, after the resurrection and uh, up until the point that they died or until the Holy Spirit no longer led them to, to write anymore. But what we do find is that there was a historical um, battle that took place in Jerusalem when there was a Jewish uprising around 66 A.D. In 66 A.D., the Jewish started to push back against the Romans. And by 70 A.D., they had, already, um, they had already put the troops around Jerusalem. And in 70 A.D., they attacked the city of Jerusalem and burnt the temple down to the ground. This would not, been a, this would not have been just a small um, incident in the Jewish culture, which the, the, um, the, the authors of the New Testament were writing. There's not even a mention of the uprising or the destruction of the temple. The oldest, the oldest gospel, which is the gospel of John, speaks of Jerusalem in the present tense as if everything is just going normal. So that's why we date it at the latest they could be written is in 70 AD. Actually, they, they date much earlier, but that is the most conservative number that we can come up with is 70 AD. So we know that they were written very early, which gives them the ability to be tied directly to the eyewitness um, the eyewitnesses of Jesus' resurrection, i.e. the apostles. So they were written early. You know, the Quran was written 400 years after Muhammad. Okay? There's a lot of time to go by for things to be made up and be changed and different things like that. Actually, it could have nothing to do with it at all. But we have early writings of the New Testament that can be tied to the very time that Jesus and the apostles lived. That's a very big very big um, uh, line of, uh, of authenticity here. Next, we have the documents were a collection of eyewitnesses. Now, how do we know that they were eyewitnesses? Well, they read like eyewitness accounts, for one, but that doesn't mean that they are true. What makes them believable in the fact that they are eyewitnesses is that they spell out specific details that only eyewitnesses would know. Now, these little, these little eyewitnesses, these eyewitness details have been laid out by a guy named Colin, Colin Hemer, um, in a book, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist, which was written by Frank Turek, where he identifies eight, 84 different details. Now, these are people. These are places. These are ports. These are ship routes. These are specific things 
that have been um, that have been proven true historically and archaeologically. There's some more information on that as well. Also, John, the book of John has 59 confirmed. It's very small details. These are details that they won't make up. These are details that illustrate that they were there and they were writing about what they actually saw. All right, next. Jesus is confirmed by non-Christian writers. Okay. For whatever reason, that's important to the skeptics because they think that the New Testament writers had some sort of agenda. Okay. I don't know about you, but I've never had an agenda to get myself beaten, tortured, and killed for what I was actually trying to spread. But however, do you want non-Christian sources? There there are non-Christian sources out there. There's only 10 non-Christian sources within 150 years of Jesus' life. Now, I've got speculation on that. I think probably there's only 10 because whenever the people heard about Jesus and his resurrection, maybe they converted to Christianity. That's possible. But there's only 10 mentions in non-Christian writings. But, but in light of that, there's only nine Christ, non-Christian um, records of Tiberius Caesar, who was the, the Roman Empire at that time. So Jesus actually got more attention from the non-Christian writers than the secular leaders of that day. All right, and next, we can reconstruct the New Testament using only the quotes of the early church fathers. Now, this was the last point that we covered last week. Now, this is, this is very important. Okay, this is, kind of gives us a double, a, um, a double line of authenticity here. One, it gives us an extra biblical source that confirms what the apostles actually wrote. You know, we can, we can actually line the writings of the um, early church fathers that are actually um, you know, give, given to the early church fathers, and we can uh, put them side by side. They say the exact same thing. Now, their writings were between the years of 95 and 110 A.D., over a period of 15 years that these early church fathers, which was uh, Clement, um, Ignatius, and Polycarp, now they wrote, um, now what they wrote, now in that they didn't quote the New Testament in its entirety, okay? But they quoted out of every single book except Job and Second John. Now that tells us one thing for sure, is that these writings were certainly between 95 and 110, which confirms that the manuscripts that they were learning from were already written, copied, circulating, and available for them. So that's just a double stamp on the fact that they were written early. I mean, it tells you a lot that that, that it was actually available for these um, early church fathers. So what can we derive from them? Is is the story any different from what we read in the the early church fathers? Actually, you'll find the exact same Jesus as portrayed by the apostles. Jesus was predicted by the Old Testament. Jesus was divine. He taught his disciples. He worked miracles. He was born of a virgin. He ministered and he was crucified and he died. He rose from the dead and demonstrated his deity as described exactly in the New Testament. That's an amazing thought too. So not only do we have non-Christian evidence, we have extra biblical evidence that confirms that the New Testament writers, what they were saying was absolutely true. Does it mean that we have to have all these things in order for it to be true? No, it doesn't, but it certainly gives evidence that it is. All right. So we're we doing good? Now we're called up. Now it's going to be some, in, some new information that you did not get last week. Now this is a kind of a fun one here. Number seven, it is verified by historical and archaeological discoveries. Okay, these are really neat. You know, there are 30, there are 30 characters that are mentioned in the New Testament. 30 characters that are mentioned in the New Testament that have been confirmed. We're talking about names that were named along with their positions in authority, whether it was government, whether they were a king or whether they were a governor or or a Roman prefect. 
they have been named and 30 of them have been identified through archaeological discoveries. Now, what, what are some of those things? You know, it would be really nice if we could tie an archaeological discovery to someone who was very close to Jesus. You see that box there? That contains the bones of Joseph Caiaphas, the one who sentenced Jesus to death. This is a very, very good piece of archaeology. This is his box. How do we know it's his box? Because it's got his name on it. Okay, this was the high priest at the time that Jesus was crucified. This was the guy that sentenced Jesus to death. These bones that are in that box stood right next to Jesus and sentenced him to crucifixion. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? Oh, we have any more? Well, yeah, there's plenty more. You ever, you ever heard, of, heard of a guy named Pontius Pilate? Okay. All right, this is called the Pilate Stone. This is the... This is the historical and archaeological evidence. His name is actually on that stone right there. So what does that tell us? It tells, tells us, one, that Pontius Pilate truly existed and that he, that he held the title of a Roman prefect during the time of Jesus' crucifixion. Now, there, are also, there are some other, other different places. Actually, one that was uncovered very recently, about 15 years ago, the Pool of Siloam. In John chapter 9 and verse 1 through 12, this was uncovered back in 2004. This was an actual place that was recorded in the Word of God. This is a specific place. Just 15 years ago, we uncovered this. The Pool of Bethesda, it was uncovered a little bit longer ago in 1888. And John, as listed in John chapter 5 and verses 1 through 9. So these are actual specific places that these people went that they saw with their own eyes, that they wrote down about, and we have discovered them. Apparently they've been buried over the, over, the, over the years and then rediscovered, proving that what the New Testament writers were saying was absolutely true because they record people and places. What about some other people that were in the, in the New Testament? You remember in Luke chapter 2 where the governor, Cyrenius, did that guy actually exist? Was he actually a governor in Syria? Well, if, if this coin says anything about who was the governor of Syria, then it certainly would. This is Cyrenius, his face and his name on a coin that was found. He's also, his name is also engraved in a statue. I didn't give you a picture of that, but that proves that this man actually existed. And he was a man of predominant um, uh, social, uh, social status. King Lysanias, in Luke chapter 3 and verse 1, there's an inscription that was found in Damascus that has his name on it. So what does this tell us about the New Testament writers? One, they weren't making up fairy tales with fake names and, and, trying, to draw, um, and trying to draw a big story about a hero named Jesus who died and was buried and rose again. They were naming actual people. These are people that they were being written about. Remember, these, these letters were being dispersed, people were reading them, they were copying them down, and they were going over and over and over again. Now, if somebody said, somebody made up a name like King Lysanias, and he didn't truly exist, it would discredit what they were writing. You have to understand, these letters were going out while these people were still alive and in these positions. So that gives a very strong weight, another strong line of authenticity of the New Testament. Pretty cool stuff, right? What do y'all think? Yeah, very interesting. Y'all learning? Is this, new, new, is this new information? Okay, good. Good deal. 
All right, now, this is something that you have all heard, and you know, you know that it's true, you have an understanding, is that the New Testament, it fulfills ancient prophecy about Jesus. It fulfills ancient prophecy. Now, there's nine specific Old Testament prophecies that foretell the origin, the nature, and the life of Jesus of Nazareth. Now, these are written um, several hundred years to a couple thousand years before Jesus' birth, but yet they predict the events with dead accuracy about his death, burial, and resurrection. But not only his death, burial, and resurrection, but his birth as well. We look in Daniel chapter 7. It narrows down the very year of the birth of Jesus. We look at Psalm 22. We look at the, the, the description of the crucifixion in Isaiah chapter 53. Incredible, high, highly detailed accounts of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. These are so accurate that many skeptics came to believe or came to say that there's no way that these had to be, that these could have been written before the fact because they were so accurate. They thought that there was something at play here, but we found the Dead Sea Scrolls that put all those questions to rest. In 1947, they came across the Dead Sea Scrolls that dated, that predated Jesus and the Septuagint. So there was, so therefore, these prophecies about Jesus were written before he was alive. And it's not something that someone could just pick up and read and then mimic these ideas. So it's not like Jesus was a, was a man in history who was just had a really good memory. He says, you know what, I want to play this character that was foretold in Daniel chapter 7 and Psalm and in Isaiah. Not only would it have had to have been Jesus, but it would have had to have been Jesus in the conspiracy along with his followers and, as, and along with those who claim to be his enemies, too. They all had to be in on making this happen. This is not something that one man could have done on his own. But however, this, had, this was a, uh, this is, what we understand is that the New Testament wrote historically accurate information about the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and it just so happens it was prophesied thousands of years beforehand. So yes, yeah, so this is a good reason we should believe the New Testament is that it is it fulfills the prophecy. All right, next is something that we've talked about briefly um, Easter two years ago. Uh, we talked about some embarrassing details. Now y'all remember some of those. And there's quite a few of them, especially surrounding the event of the resurrection and the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. Now if you're going to make up a story or embellish a story about a heroic figure and his henchmen, you're certainly not going to include details that will be embarrassing to them, right? We've, we've all done the test. We don't lie to make ourselves look bad. We lie to make ourselves look good, all right? I've never lied to make myself look bad. However, I have lied to make myself look good or exaggerated. Your, pa your pastor don't lie, But we have embarrassing details and that surround Jesus and, and his followers. You know, the New Testament manuscripts, they, they do include these embarrassing details. His, fo his followers often were, seemed to be foolish. They didn't understand the teachings of Jesus. They, they questioned it quite, quite a few times, not understanding the words that he, was that he was saying. They were cowards at the time of his arrest. What did they do whenever Jesus was arrested? They flee. They left. They ran. Peter denied him, denied even knowing him, and, and even, even went to cussing just to prove that he was not a part of Jesus' following. And then they quit the ministry altogether. 
He said, I'm going back fishing. And it wasn't until they actually witnessed the resurrected body of Jesus Christ as he was speaking to them that the, 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 the light switch flipped. And they became a very, um, a, a force to be reckoned with in the preaching of the gospel in the, in the early first century. So however, these embarrassing details are there. His disciples and even Jesus' own family considered Jesus to be out of his mind. He was labeled a deceiver. Some called him a drunkard. Some called him even demon-possessed. But most amazingly, he suffered the worst kind of defeat any devout Jew could ever imagine. What was that? He hung on a tree, which was the worst ultimate curse that any Jewish person could ever suffer. So if you're actually trying to paint a hero, you wouldn't record these things. You wouldn't make these things up about, about Jesus or about his followers. You know, these aren't the things that anyone would use to convince that their hero was God. They are going to record these things. These are the kind of things that the writer will write because he is documenting the events as they actually happened. So whenever you find embarrassing details, and any historian will tell you, if you find a document and it's actually recording embarrassing details about the author itself or the main character, you can say that, yes, it's probably true because nobody lies to make themselves look bad but they will lie to make themselves look good. And we see that it doesn't appear that the writers were doing this. They were actually including the good, the bad, the ugly, just simply because they are historically accurate documents that recorded the events as they actually took place. So yeah, so the embar embarrassing details is another line of authenticity when it comes to the New Testament. And also, it, it, it includes the difficult sayings of Jesus. And along the same lines as, as, the, as the previous point, the New Testament writers, they make Jesus a very difficult figure to serve. And he sets new and attainable standards. Jesus goes around saying, you know, it's been said of old that you should not commit adultery. Well, I say to you, let me raise this up a little bit. For you to look at a woman and lust after her, you have committed adultery with her in your heart. So he, he, he takes the standards of the Old Testament and actually raises the bar on them. He teaches, he teaches against, uh, he raises the bar uh, on the standards of justice for judgment, lust, marriage, and finances and love. These tough sayings are not things that you're going to add and make up if you want to get a following. As you can even see today, if you want to get a following, what do you have to do? You entice people. You, try, you, try, you, you entice people based on the desires of their flesh. Offer them worldly things and to make them promises and financial wealth. You know, the three motivations that people commit crimes or conspiracies is love, is, um, not love, is, is money, sex, and power. All three of these things the apostles stood in contrast to. They taught sexual morality. They taught against sexual immorality. They, they, they taught against the dangers of loving money over Christ. They taught, and, and it certainly wasn't power, that wasn't a motivation for them because they got them beaten, tortured, killed, and dispersed among the land. So, it includes the tough sayings of Jesus. If you're actually trying to get a following, this is probably not the way that they would actually do it. But they tell the truth. And a lot of it, it is a hard truth. It's a hard truth for the, for, for the world to hear and say, you are sinners, and you are in need of a Savior. And the only way that you're going to get there is this one who was crucified, who was buried, and he is now risen. So even includes the tough sayings of Jesus. So it's not necessarily a conspiracy. They're just teaching the truth about it. Next is there is a chain of custody. How many of y'all know what that, that's a picture of right there? 
That's the Codex Sinaiticus. I can't believe you didn't know that. That's another joke, by the way. That's the Codex Sinaiticus. This is the oldest known complete copy of the New Testament. Okay, this is the oldest known complete binded um, piece of antiquity that, it, that, that holds the entire New Testament. Um, now, this dates to be around 350 B.C., and it sits in the monastery at St. Catherine. It was found in the Sinai Peninsula, and they've dated to 350 B.C. Now, if we take that and we compare it to the New Testament that you are carrying, you will find it to be the same. Okay, now that's pretty amazing. But there's 300, there's 300 years that we don't know about, right? Jesus was crucified in 30. They stopped writing somewhere between, you know, 66 and 70. But now we got 300 years later. Is there a chain of custody that ties the New Testament writers to what we see there? And if what we see there matches what we have, and if we can, if we can bridge that chain between that and the New Testament writers, then we can be certain that what we have in our hand is what the apostles actually wrote. Well, the truth about it is, is that yes, there is a chain of custody and you can trace the, the Codex Sinaiticus back to the original authors. Now, we won't go into the details about that, but there is a book that Andreas is going through that lays this out in very clear detail. So whenever that class happens again, I want y'all to take this class. It's a very, very good class. And this is just, this is just part of it. But, uh, but Jim Wallace, he's a retired Los Angeles cold case detective, and he applied the methods of his detective work to the, um, to the eyewitness accounts of the New Testament. And he's actually able to connect the dots historically and accurately from the writers of the New Testament all the way to the Codex Sinaiticus, which is what you see here. And he, he has a reliable chain of custody and a chain of evidence, and he can, he, can, he can prove beyond reasonable doubt with historical archaeological evidence that this got passed down, and what, what is there is accurate, and what is there agrees with what is in your, in your hand. Pretty cool, right? Yeah, so, you can, you know, so you can know with confidence that what you have in your hand as a New Testament is exactly what the apostles wrote, because we can tie the, the apostles to that book and that agrees with what is in your hand. I think it's pretty amazing. I, I don't know. I, I kind of geek out over this stuff. So, All right, and lastly, what time we got? All right, we're good on time. <clears throat> and lastly, it contains unintended coincidences. Now, these are kind of neat. Now, these are things that you're not going to see just reading through the Bible. These are things that you have to kind of come up and kind of question and try to cross-examine between the different writers in the New Testament. This is really, really really, really cool. <clears throat> now, one of the most powerful ways to tell if a story is authentic is you must compare the different eyewitness accounts. So we got four different Gospels, right, written by four different people. And we need to compare those to see if the truth can be found within that. Now, let me ask you a question. If you are investigating a crime or, or something that, is, that has happened, and you have a couple eyewitnesses who say they were there, and you get together and you talk to one, you talk to the other, you talk to however many are there, and every single one of them tells you exactly the same thing word for word. What are you going to assume? Collusion, right? They got together and they got their story. They got their story straight. If they tell you the exact same story, you're going to think, hmm, yeah, that's kind of fishy. 
But if you talk to the same, people, same two people and you have widely contradictory stories, what do you think? Well, one person's lying or they're both lying because they don't even line up, right? Now, what if you talk to the same two, or the same, same crime, two different witnesses, and they tell you the same story but different details? And what if those different details fill in the story completely when you put them together? What does that tell you? They're probably telling the truth from two different perspectives, right? And they remember maybe different details that this person may have left out, and this person has rem remembered different details that this person didn't share. But whenever you put the stories together, you get one coherent story about it. Does that make sense? So whenever you're actually looking at eyewitness details and eyewitness testimony, what you want to find is some variation there from different perspectives, but they can't be contrad contradictory. But if they fit together, you're like saying, well, they're probably both telling the truth. It's just from their perspective. Now, what do we see when we go to the New Testament? Well, there's the, there are these undesigned um, coincidences or unintended coincidences that you will find, and the New Testament is riddled with them. They're all over the place. Now, just to share a couple with you. We won't go too far into this because there's just way too many. Um, uh, and, and one way to, one example is whenever we look at Matthew's account of Jesus appearing before the Sanhedrin in Matthew chapter 26, verses 67 and 68. Now, after they spit in his face, they strike him with their fists and they slap him. They say to him, prophesy to us, Christ, who hit you? That seems to be a weird question. If you're standing somewhere and someone hits you and someone asks you the question, who hit you? Do you think you could tell them? It's kind of a crazy question to ask, especially if you just hit the guy. Now, now tell me who hit you, right? Well, we don't know. We don't have an understanding until we look at another eyewitness account to this particular place. We look in the book of Luke, chapter 22 and verse 64. In Luke chapter 22 and verse 64, we find out before, or whenever they bring them in before the Sanhedrin, they blindfold him. That's why they're saying, now prophesy to us who hit you. And that's just a very simple explanation or example to, to what has actually happened. You see, Matthew tells a story, but that sounds kind of funny. So you go over to Luke's account, completely, um, completely from, from a different angle, you find out that the detail that was left out by Matthew was covered by Luke. And when you compare the two stories, they don't contradict. They're not exactly the same, but yet they complement one another unintendedly. So this is, not, this is not a case of the New Testament writers coming together and colluding and getting their story straight and writing down the same thing, right? We have four Gospels. We don't just have one. Four Gospels written by four different people from four different perspectives. And that's an amazing, that's an amazing um, layer of authenticity here. It's because we can, we can confirm not only by the details, but, by, but, because of the, um, but because of the unintended coincidences that draw them together is found within these eyewitness accounts. Now, if I could just touch on one, on one more of those, because I think they're really neat, is the feeding of the 5,000. Now, there's quite a few different coincidences in there, simply because they are recorded in all four Gospels. So in the feeding of the 4,000, whenever in the, uh, I think it's the book of, uh, I'm, trying, I'm trying to think, it, I think it's Matthew. Yeah, I think it's the Matthew account. In the book of Matthew, whenever they come to the point where they're going to be feeding the 5,000, Jesus looks over and says, Philip, where can we buy bread for all of these people? Because as they're coming, they're coming to rush. They're, they're actually rushing up against him. They're, they're following him. And he looks to, P, to Philip, of all people. Right? There's not much said about Philip. He's kind of a minor character. So why would they ask Philip 
where can we buy bread? He's not even the treasurer. That's Judas. So why would you think to ask Philip this question? Well, there's very little that we know about Philip, okay? Aside from just being named as one of Jesus' followers, he's only mentioned a couple of times, and he's only mentioned in the book of John. So why is he calling out Philip? Was there not anybody else around? Well, Andrew joins the conversation in it, and this is John's eyewitness account, and John was actually part of the, the inner three, which is Peter, James, and John. So why the minor character Philip? Why is he asking Philip this question? Well, what can we find out about Philip? Well, if we go, down to, go back to John chapter 1, this is in the same book, though it is an un, it's completely, completely unrelated, same book, we go to John chapter 1, we find out that Philip is from Bethsaida. Okay, well, that's interesting. But we don't know where the feeding of the 5,000 is, according to the book of John. So we go to the book of Luke. And guess what it tells us? Luke says the feeding of the 5,000 took place in Bethsaida. Now, what, now what, what difference does that make? Well, Jesus was asking Philip, where can we buy bread? Because why? That's where he's from. That's where he's from. Well, okay, Philip. Now, not that, not that he intended on feeding them by going and buying bread. Actually, the, the scripture talks about that, that he actually knew that he was going to feed them miraculously, but he was testing Philip. But however, that's an, that's a, that is, a, that is a, um, another incidence where there's an unintended coincidence where details are filled in by the variables that are by eyewitness accounts. They're all correct and they're all true, but we get a fuller story when we put them together, exactly what you would expect by a true eyewitness statement. So the Bible, invariably, is almost irrefutably true. So we have all of these different things. Now the reliability of the New Testament, in my opinion, is beyond dispute. Okay, I believe it takes more more, um, uh, I, think it, I think it's more reasonable to believe that the New Testament is true than to say that it is false. We, we have the evidence that, that shows the New Testament is true and that Jesus is who he says he is. It's reliable. And if, if the New Testament is reliable, that means that we can trust its purpose. And the purpose is to give an account of the life, the teachings, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If the New Testament is true, then Jesus is who he said he was, he did what he said he was going to do, and he's going to come back like he said that he will. That is a big deal. If the New Testament is true, then that means that Jesus is our only way to salvation. That means that the only way that we can have our sins forgiven is through the work that he did on the cross. He truly did die on the cross for his sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and was resurrected according to the scriptures. And he will come back one day. And when he comes back that day, he will call us all home to be with him, those who have trusted in Jesus. Now, Jesus is exactly who he said he was. His, his resurrection confirmed it. Now, we've talked about the Old Testament, or the New Testament, but what about the Old Testament? I don't have 20 points about the Old Testament. I've just got one. What about the Old Testament? How many of you are thinking the same thing? Okay, well, this is really great, but what about the, new, what about the Old Testament? Well, if Jesus is God in the New Testament, then Jesus is God in the Old Testament too. And Jesus certified that the Old Testament was true by quoting it. And he verified it. And if Jesus is God in the New Testament, then he confirmed the Old Testament. And if Jesus is who he says he is, then you automatically get the Old Testament thrown in if the New Testament is true. 
Now, you can be confident in the fact that there are plenty of reasons that we can trust the New Testament. And, and we'll, we'll, we'll wrap it up here. There are plenty of reasons that we can trust in the New Testament. And the reason why I did this is I really wanted you to have some firm ground that you could stand on. You know, I wanted you to have confidence. And I believe in knowing, it's one thing to say the Bible is true and that you believe it. But to know why you say it is true goes a long way in owning your faith and standing confident before a world that so desperately rejects it. Any questions? I'll give you an opportunity for a question. All right, if not, you can see me afterwards. Let's go ahead and let's stand. And let's, let's, uh, let's praise the Lord with one final song this morning. As our musicians come forward...